0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate. Grammy winner and country music legend Larry Gatlin, who's also a very well-educated and articulate scholar of history, wrote this great guest column, Prologue. On a cold January day in 1842, a half-starved soldier slumping across the neck of a dying horse appeared at the gates of of Jalalabad, Afghanistan. The horse and rider had survived a 10, I I can hear you, Angel. The horse and rider had survived a 10 day, 90 mile retreat over and through the gar range that sprawls between Kabul through Jalalabad to the Kuiper Pass. Behind them lay the frozen mangled bodies of General Sir William Elphinstone and more than 4,500 soldiers of the British British and East India ex, I can't even talk tonight of the British and East India Expeditionary Force. The general had been promised a safe withdrawal to India by Muhammad Akbar Khan the leader of the Afghan tribesmen, who had revolted against British rule. But after evacuating Kabul, the British force was attacked by Khan's tribesmen army at Gandamak, where the British force made a valiant but futile last stand. When Dr. William Bryden, the lone survivor of that first battle of Kabul, was asked where the rest of the army was, he simply answered, I am the army. In 1879, Dr. Bryden and his horse were immortalized on canvas by Elizabeth Thompson, Lady Butler. Her painting, quote, Remnants of an Army, unquote, ranks with Picasso's, with Goya's, Emmanuel Lutz's, William Bass's, and God knows, too many more paintings depicting the horrors of war. Chapter One On a hot August day in 2021, I was reminded of Lady Butler's painting as I watched another remnant of an army, General Chris Donahue, retreat from this most recent battle of Kabul. A retreat which I'm guessing was against the General's will and better military judgment. General Donahue, commander of the vaunted 82nd Airborne, was captured on film by a night-vision camera as he solemnly trudged up the gangway of a C-17 to leave Afghanistan, and God only knows how many American citizens left behind. Over the last fortnight, as the Brits would say, I have searched my heart, soul, and mind, trying to get my brain wrapped around the events of the last two weeks. President Biden's shameful, cowardly, military, and defensible, politically motivated decision to surrender the most powerful military force on the planet to a rabble of the 7th century Neanderthals, murderers, terrorists, and rapists, called the Taliban. I confess that I am not so damned mad at the Surrenderer-in-Chief that any clear-eyed assessment of the situation on my part is difficult, if not impossible. What I really want to say cannot be printed in these pages, and if it could be printed, would probably prompt a visit to my house by the employees of one or more security agencies of the United States government. At the very least, I would be cancelled from Facebook and Twitter. I don't do either one, by the way. Chapter two. In order to try to accomplish that probably impossible task, I decided to try to get some historical perspective regarding wars, the victories, defeats, surrenders, and retreats, the cowards and the heroes from the past. I went back and reread some of the classical writers on warfare. Herodotus. Thucydides, Gibbon, and more recent writers, Stephen Cain, Eric Mia Remarque, and finally, my contemporary literary hero, Ernest Hemingway, because I remembered what he said when asked how he started a new novel. He said, quote, I just sit down at my typewriter and I bleed, unquote. So this morning over coffee, I reread for the umpteenth time parts of Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls on the chance that it might help me understand this latest chapter that I call the Biden blunder of what Captain Arthur Connolly and Rudrick Kipling long ago dubbed the great game, the fight for Afghanistan and Central Asia. Since I do not own a typewriter. And since my iPad is a cold black piece of metal and composite poly something or other and has no soul, I sat down at my writing table, the surface of which are my two priceless 1798 Imperial editions of Charles Knightley's The Plays of William Shakespeare. I took my Palomino Blackwing 602 pencil in hand And let it bleed onto a piece of unlined white paper. And this is what it bled. Number one. I am not a warrior. Number two. I have never really been shot at. Once in Somalia, a few rounds fired over my head. Different story for another time. Number three. I have never shot at anything that did not have four legs or rings. Number four. I have never been in that hell that General Sheridan called war. Number five, I've never seen another human being being blown apart in front of my eyes. And number six, I never heard the dogs of war howling all around me or felt the earth shake from exploding ordnance on a killing field where life seemed to be so cheap and so costly at the same time. So how can I possibly write anything that matters? Now, remember, everyone, this is Larry Gatlin writing. And he says the answer is, maybe I can't. But this morning, I watched and I listened as a 30-something, preppy-looking, button-down, Ivy League-looking robot was trotted out by the Pentagon to try to convince me and my fellow Americans that we need not worry about the 9 billion dollars worth of -of state-of-the-art military equipment that was left behind in this latest retreat from the Afghanistan, and that it poses no threat to us, I respectfully offer that those who believe and believe that are either heartlessly indifferent, woefully naive, ignorant of history, just plain stupid, or all of the above. And I will state emphatically that there is a danger looming in those remote mountains. It has been for almost 300 years and still is one of the most strategically important places in the world. The Khyber Pass between Afghanistan and Pakistan and our friends and allies to whom we have given almost $80 billion since 1948 and our Friends have nukes, a lot of nukes, and they have friends called the Taliban. And the Taliban has poppy fields, a lot of poppy fields, which means money, a lot of money, which means weapons, a lot of weapons, which means dead bodies a lot of dead bodies because the Khyber Pass is still right there where it has been since the beginning of time at the crossroads between England through Europe through the Straits of Bosporus to Central Asia, India, Arabia, and Russia to Africa, intersecting the Silk Road from China to Africa and the Mediterranean. And whoever controls it, to a large extent, controls half of the world." This is my interjection. And Biden, the man that people are calling the President of the United States, has given that to the Taliban. Now back to the story. See Tom Clancy's Sum of All Fears, wherein the bad guys obtain Fissile material from an unexplored Israeli nuke and make a dirty bomb that they explode at the Super Bowl in Washington, D.C. The scariest thing of all is that Joe Biden and all of the usual suspects, his lemmings handlers, psychophants, are still in charge of keeping America safe and protecting America's interests, including the above mentioned Kyber Pass. And they just do not. Get it. Clueless Joe Biden surrendered again. God help us. Dr. Bryden and his fellow British soldiers soldiers were fighting to keep the Khyber Pass open because it was the gateway for trade, for goods and services back and forth between England and India, the jewel of the British Empire, the passing of Goods and services is no longer the reason to secure the Kyber. Unless by goods and services you mean nukes and fissile material. And I'm afraid that there will be nothing good passing through the Kyber anytime soon. Epilogue. George Santa Anna wrote, Quote, Those who do not, do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it." Unquote. I would offer that clueless Joe cannot remember what he had for breakfast and he is repeating the same old mistakes and finally plato wrote that quote, "argument based on knowledge implies instruction and there are someone cannot instruct." Unquote. Clueless Joe has proven that being knowledgeable is not one of his strong suits and that he cannot be instructed unless by instructed, you mean, I was instructed to call on Kelly O'Donnell, etc., etc. I would offer that there's some whom one cannot even shame, which is, in fact, a shame. Charlie Wilson said, quote, three things happened. They were glorious. They changed the world. Then we effed up the end game. Unquote. I would offer that because we effed up the end game back in 88, we had to go back to Afghanistan. And that's what precipitated this latest tragic episode clueless Joe Biden's disastrous surrender of Afghanistan to the Taliban. God help us. Dr. William Bryden must be rolling over in his grave. Unquote. The days are getting shorter, and in most areas around the country, the nights are getting cooler, along with the daytime temperatures. Are we ready for what is coming this winter? And I am not talking about the winter. I am talking about the climate of our nation. If you really want to know, look up operation dark winter for those of you who are interested in understanding the impact scandals have on political futures of individual politicians afghan excuse me afghanistan has to be a particularly confusing situation one of the largest international embarrassment in our nation's history the abandonment of American citizens, not only in Kabul, but across that country and the seeming deliberate armament of the same force we have been fighting for over 20 years. Predictably, this created a massive hit to the current administration's approval ratings and competence within the eyes of the citizenry. It even undermined the legitimacy of the administration to the appoint of of Democrats believe that the president should be impeached, according to the Rasmussen polls. The same poll that, quote, only 38% of the voters think that Vice President Harris is even qualified to be president. 25% say she's very qualified, and 33% of Democrats believe she is not qualified at all. The poll was conducted in August 30th and 31st. Of over a thousand likely American voters. Unquote. It was not just the botched withdrawal that cost American service members their lives, presumably American citizens their lives as well, and the American taxpayer over $83 billion more, in addition to the trillions already spent in Afghanistan. The equipment we left for the Taliban costs more than six brand new aircraft carriers would. And we lost our service members in a suicide bombing. Many felt enraged that we did not strike back immediately and commandingly. Whenever we finally did, Biden told us we killed the ISIS-K member responsible for planning the attack. When in reality, they had killed an aid worker who used to work with the American troops and seven children. Once again, Biden Lied. The incomprehensible yet infuriating destruction of the entire withdrawal effort continued at home whenever Biden was at Dover Air Force Base in Colorado. During the dignified transport of the fallen, Biden checked his watch in what the Gold Star families called, quote, the most disres- disrespectful thing they had ever seen. Unquote. For the first time in years, there seemed to be a cause that rallied together people of both sides of the political spectrum. If we've learned anything about the current political machine, it is that unity among the people is not allowed. Stoking the divide along political, political, racial, socioeconomical, and gender lines has been the go-to move for the establishment since the Occupy Wall Street movement. The reason being, the only real threat to their power is a unified population against their corruption. Therefore, it was of the utmost importance that the elites take their failure out of the public consciousness. In order to achieve that, they decide to divide people on another line, vaccination status. This is why Biden gave the deeply un-American speech that American citizens were going to be denied freedom of movement, food and water, and almost every service that has become integrated into our daily lives. The theoretical leader of the free world said, and I quote, The Department of Labor will require employers with 100 or more workers to give those workers paid time off to get vaccinated. No one should lose pay in order to get vaccinated or take a loved one to get vaccinated. Today in total, the vaccine requirements in my plan will affect about 100 million Americans, two-thirds of all workers. And for other sectors, I issue this appeal. To those of you running large entertainment venues, from sports arenas to concert venues to movie theaters, please require folks to get vaccinated or show a negative test as a condition of entry, unquote. They buried incompetence with government overreach. If it is impossible for you to comprehend the possibility that the federal government could get away with mandating private companies forcing their employees to get the vaccine right after leaving thousands of Americans to die in Afghanistan, you are not alone. The only thing that allows for the political establishment to manipulate the public consciousness with the iron fist that it does is their absolute control over big tech, social media, and corporate press. Within 24 hours of Biden's speech announcing these unconstitutional mandates, the mainstream media hacks were already carrying water and trying to dissuade opponents from attempting to prevent his totalitarian plan from taking effect. NBC News published a piece, quote, Republican threats to Biden's vaccine mandates is unlikely to succeed, experts say, unquote, which NBC News claimed, quote, legal experts, however, said those lawsuits are most likely but not certain to fail due to wide ranging powers that the Constitution and decades of administrative law precedent have established. Generally speaking, Public health powers are delegated to the states, experts said, but the Constitution also gives the federal government broad powers to relegate certain matters when it perceives that states and localities are not able to do so or are doing so inadequately. In this case, experts explained, Biden's mandates pass muster because he is filtering them through the lenses of workplace safety and through the constitutional language of federal spending powers, unquote. This, of course, is a poor attempt to defend an indefensible position. There is no question that the mandate Biden put forward to take people's eyes off of Afghanistan is not constitutional. The mistake that conservatives are making is falling for the bait. And, of course, this mandates should be fought. The 24 state attorney generals should throw everything they have into the fight in the court system. But conservative pundits, candidates, and supporters need to continue to address the cataclysmic collapse Biden, Milley, and Blinken orchestrated in Afghanistan. Vaccinated or unvaccinated, everyone can understand the disaster that Afghanistan was from an international affairs perspective and the national security concern it creates moving forward. It is imperative that conservatives continue to show how the elite, not the moderate Democrat voters, are the threat to our freedoms and to America. Afghanistan is the most effective way to do that, which is why they will do anything to keep you from talking about it. During Joe Biden's divisive speech on that Thursday night, he continually blamed, pressured, and degraded the almost 80 million Americans who are unvaccinated. He used his power to threaten blackmail and strong-arm Americans into taking an experimental drug. This unproven vaccine not only boasts questionable safety, but also has (laughs) apocryphal results with infection, serious and otherwise. Denmark withdrawing its restrictions exponentially, more breakthrough cases among the vaccinated than previously infected in Israel, or the case study of Sweden, all present reason to doubt the COVID-19 policy that we've endured for 20 long months now. Pfizer originally claimed the vaccine held 95% effectiveness throughout clinical trials, but by July, that had fallen to 39% according to the Israel Ministry of Health. Yet despite the numbers like this, there's an almost religious zealot level of obsession with getting every single person vaccinated every six months for the rest of their lives. Okay, for example, according to a case study from Frontiers in Medicine, quote, The patient had an alpha variant breakthrough infection despite past infections, complete vaccination, and seroconversion. Despite boosting after this infection, the patient subsequently had a severe Delta variant breakthrough infection. This was also a WGS-proven reinfection and, therefore, a case of breakthrough reinfection. The patient acquired the infection from a fully vaccinated family member, unquote. How their obsession can be so resistant to counter-evidence is a whole nother conversation. Coronavirus and the subsequent vaccination is only regarded so seriously in the assumption that the, that the disease is extremely deadly. Multiple studies have been conducted to understand how the public perceives their risk from COVID 19 compared to what the science says that their risk is. As a study from the Brookings Institute found, quote, when asked to estimate the shares of deaths by age groups, the average American dramatically overestimates the share of COVID-19 deaths from people age 24 and younger, putting it around 8%, when in fact it was 0.1% through August and has re- remained close to that level since. Meanwhile, the elderly those 65 and older, had accounted for 81% of the deaths at the time of the survey and 79% through November. Democrats were further off than Republicans and more likely to overstate the risks to young people, even after accounting for age, race, gender, geographic, and educational differences." Although the corporate media, public health officials, teachers, celebrities, and almost every voice of authority are telling you to live in fear, there is not a compelling reason for you to listen. And for those of you who may have had a hard time believing you over all of these authoritative voices, there is a tool that could be convincing. Oxford University has created an algorithm that allows you to understand your risk from COVID-19. This is called a COVID calculator, and it allows you to enter your relevant medical information in an anonymous way, supposedly, and in return, you are given both your absolute and relative risk or the risk of death for a healthy 21 year old male, according to the Oxford University COVID 19 calculator. The results of an average 20 something year old male with no pre existing conditions and a normal BMI is one in a million. Despite the relatively low lack of risk people without multiple faces from COVID-19, the fear-mongering has been effectively carried out. It's been so total in its goal of taking over the average citizen's mind that the idea of natural immunity has been tripped from the public consciousness. And amazingly, this is despite multiple studies showing to be more effective than ever decreasing efficacy of the vaccines. And as the study from Nature Communications says from March of this year, looked at the T-cell presence in patients who were previously infected with the SARS-CoV-2, it found, quote, T-cell immunity is important for recovery from COVID-19 and provides heightened immunity for reinfection. We also demonstrate the size and quality of the memory T-cell pool of COVID-19 patients are larger and better than those of close contacts. However, the proliferation capacity, size, and quality of T-cell responses in close contacts are readily distinguishable from health donors, suggesting close contacts are able to gain T-cell immunity against SARS-CoV-2 despite lacking a detectable infection. Additionally, asymptomatic and symptomatic COVID-19 patients contain similar levels of SARS-CoV-2, specific T-cell memory. Overall, this study demonstrates the versatility and potential of memory T-cells from COVID-19 patients and close contacts, which may be important for host protection. Unquote. And a more recent article published on August 25th of this year in the MedRx4 gives a more definitive answer to the natural immunity versus vaccine questions. The team from different institutions in Israel discovered that, quote, natural immunity confers longer lasting and stronger protection against infection, symptomatic disease, and hospitalization caused by the Delta variant of sars cov2 compared to the bnt162b2 which is the pfizer two dose vaccine induced immunity unquote. there is of course logical support to prefer natural immunity the vaccine is a synthetic attempt to generate a response to a specific portion of the sars-cov2 which is the virus in the body, while the natural immune response will recognize not only the spike proteins, but the entire virus. This point seems to have been lost during the discussion on vaccine passports and mandates from the current administration. The consequences of this can definitely be considered comical, if not disastrous. By instituting a no papers, no service policy, public health officials could prevent those who are most protected from being able to enter society. Clearly, this is a violation of human, constitutional, and civil liberties, but it also counter to the stated justification for the policy. This is why it is possible for the seven-day rolling average of the cases to be 300% of where it was a year ago, despite 64% of the population having received at least one dose. The second week of September of last year saw an average of 36,000 cases daily, while the current average is at 143,000 new cases per day. While this may be hard to believe given the breathlessness coverage that the media gave to every possible COVID-19 horror story leading up to the election and their relative silence on the failure of the current administration's handling of the pandemic, one must understand that our media is far from unbiased. I know. Shock. As the original story illustrates, fully vaccinated individuals are infecting other fully vaccinated vaccinated individuals while the entire country blames the unvaccinated. They only do that because they are led into believing this false version of reality by the authoritative sources they falsely believe to be trustworthy. Although they are confident in the error, do not forget that the scientific evidence does not support the fear that they have or the plan of action that they are attempting to force on you. So, what is Pfizer? Let's just concentrate on that one for now. That's not what you think. For over a year and for almost the entirety of this COVID-19 pandemic, big pharma companies like Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and especially Pfizer have been hailed as our guardian angels These were the corporations that would engineer a vaccine and allow us to get back to living our lives as normal human beings, free from masks, lockdowns, and all the other madness that's been normalized. Perhaps these companies are less kind and helpful nurses and more profit-driven crony capitalists subsidized by the government. I can't even read. pfizer was the first to say their vaccine was safe for children as young as five years old, which calls into question their track record about putting customers' well-being above potential profit. According to their company, History Index, in 1957, quote, A Pfizer advertisement used the professional cards of eight physicians to endorse the new drug, Sig. Mamison, that's Sig Mamison. John Lear, science editor of the Saturday Review, denounced this advertising in a scathing attack. Not only were the names of the eight physicians fictitious, Lear claimed, but the Quota Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association prohibited solicitation and soliciting endorsements from physicians. Moreover, Lear used the Pfizer ad to underscore and criticize what he saw as a trend toward the overprescription of antibiotics, exaggerated claims on drug effects, and concealment of possible side effects. Unquote. That was a long time ago for an ethical violation. Who is to say their current company's values have not improved in the decades since this misstep? They settled an investigation into their advertising practices again in 2003 after 19 states began scrutinizing how the company had marketed, at the time, the second largest oral antibiotic in the world. The company paid out a total of $6 million in an effort to stop the investigation. Then the next year, Pfizer as a parent company of Warner Lambert, pled guilty and agreed to pay $430 million to the United States Department of Justice in order to settle both criminal and civil suits stemming from their promotion of an unapproved medication. The Department of Justice press release reads quote, Warner Lambert's strategic marketing plans, as well as other evidence, show that Neurontin was aggressively marketed to treat a wide array of ailments for which the drug was not approved. The company promoted Neurontin for the treatment of bipolar mental disorder, various pain disorders, lateral sclerosis, degenerative nerve disease or Lou Gehrig's disease, attention deficit disorder, migraines, drug and alcohol withdrawal seizures, restless leg syndrome, and as a first line monotherapy treatment for epilepsy. And also in 2004, the corporate research project same thing, quote, in 2004 Pfizer announced that it had reached over a $60 million settlement of a class action suit brought by users of Resolin, a diabetic medication developed by Werner Lambert, which had withdrawn it from the market shortly before the company was acquired by Pfizer in 2000. The withdrawal came after the scores of patients died from acute liver failure said to be caused by the drug, unquote. Unfortunately for Pfizer and their customers, the problems were far from over. In 2005, according to a report from the New York Times, quote, Celebrex, the arthritis and pain medication, sustained another blow yesterday when Pfizer acknowledged that a 1999 clinical trial found that elderly patients taking the drug were far more likely to suffer heart problems than patients taking a placebo, unquote. In 2009, Pfizer said, the latest single settlement in the history of settlements, whenever they agreed to pay, Two point three billion dollars. The Department of Justice said, quote, American pharmaceutical giant Pfizer Incorporated and its subsidiary Pharmacia and Upjohn Company Incorporated, hereinafter, together known as Pfizer, have agreed to pay $2.3 billion, the largest healthcare fraud settlement in the history of the Department of Justice, to resolve criminal and civil liability arising from the illegal promotion of certain pharmaceutical products. Unquote. In another New York Times piece from 2010, it was reported that, quote, Pfizer said it had paid about $20 million to 4,500 doctors and other professionals for consulting and speaking on its behalf in the six, last six months of 2009. Its first public accounting of payments to the people who decide which drugs to recommend, unquote. Now, this scandal was followed closely in 2011, whenever, according to the Department of Justice, quote, American pharmaceutical company Pfizer Incorporated has agreed to pay $14.5 million to resolve false claims, acts, allegations relating to its marketing of the drug Detrol, the Department of Justice announced today, unquote. Are we seeing a pattern here yet, folks? Well, let us continue. This proved to be yet another difficult year for the pharmaceutical giant whenever their second major news public relations nightmare of the year broke. The Department of Health and Human Services put out a notice on the wire that they had contacted Pfizer regarding their false advertising of the risk associating with one of their drugs. It states, quote, the web page cited in this letter is misleading because it makes representations and/or suggestions about the efficacy of Caduet and Caduet tablets, Chantix tablets, and Norvasc or Norvisec tablets, but fails to communicate any risk information associated with the use of these drugs. Thus, the webpage misbrands the drug in violation of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. In case the trend of the standard practices of this company has not yet been made clear, in 2012, the Securities and Exchange Commission charged Pfizer for bribing foreign doctors. In their release, the SAC says, SEC alleges that employees and agents of Pfizer's subsidiaries in Bulgaria, China, Croatia, Czech Republic, Italy, Kazakhstan, Russia, and Serbia made improper payments to foreign officials to obtain regulatory and formulary approvals, sales, and increased prescriptions for the company's pharmaceutical products. They tried to conceal the bribery by improperly recording the transactions and accounting records as legitimate expenses for promotional activities, marketing, training, travel and entertainment, clinical trials, freight conferences, and advertising, unquote. Now, this is what is going on. That, that was in 2012. This continues on. But let's digress just a little bit. In some states, right now, the governors are calling in the National Guard to take over doctors and nurses and staffing of hospitals and clinics. Why? Because these professionals are refusing to take the jab. Think about that. Let's skip ahead to this year. This year. The Reuters reported Pfizer's troubles continue among the windfall of the COVID-19 vaccine government contracts. The Reuters reports, quote, Pfizer Incorporated has agreed to pay $345 million to resolve claims by consumers who say they overpaid for EpiPen's due to anti-competitive practices by the drug maker and the company that markets the emergency allergy treatment, Mylan, unquote. These are only a handful of the dozens and dozens of examples of Pfizer caring more about their bottom line than if their products are safe, never mind beneficial for the cons- customers to use. Just as a cross-examining attorney who catches a witness in a lie will ask, if you lied once, why should we believe that you would do it again or not do it again? Well, we should be asking Pfizer. If you've put profits first dozens and dozens of times throughout the years, why should we believe that you would not do it again? And the thorn of property rights in the Biden administration's side, even with the American traditions of liberty autonomy, and limited government disintegrating in front of our eyes, a few of our freedoms have remained. Our political betters in D.C. are attempting to remove the last obstacles preventing their political dominion of the middle and working class. One of the most important rights enshrined in the Constitution is each individual right to own and control their private property. This is the cornerstone of free market capitalism and, more importantly, Western civilization. This importance is reflected in sayings like, a man's home is his castle. Unlike the dramatic threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party or the possibility of a total grid shutdown due to Russian, Iranian, or other states' of cyber warfare capabilities, not everything that is an existential threat to our American way of life, get your adrenaline pumping. This does not make them less important. In fact, it makes these threats more dangerous since many people discard them as unimportant due to the lack of urgency that they elicit. We here at Around the Campfire with Kate have been following a story over the summer which is as alarming as it is uncovered uncovered by the media. Economists have long understood that incentive of allowing people to accumulate wealth, invest in property, and pass those assets along to their children would create unmatched economic productivity. Adam Smith, 1723 to 1790, known as the father of economics, said, quote, individual ambition serves the common good, unquote. One of the main Inspirations for the Founding Fathers, John Locke was a champion of the idea of individual property rights. According to the Foundation for Economic Education, Locke established that private property is absolutely essential for liberty. Quote, every man has a property in his own person. There is nobody, this nobody has any right to put, okay, let me start this over. Every man has a property in his own person. This no body has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are his property. The great and chief end, therefore, of men's uniting into commonwealths and putting themselves under government is the preservation of their property." Throughout our American tradition, the importance of this right has largely been understood and respected by local, state, and federal authorities. Unfortunately, it seems that the current political class in Washington, D.C. has decided to suspend their respect for this right under the guise of protecting the environment, agriculture, equality. Under the 2030 agenda, governments and international organizations such as the United Nations have advocated for the confiscation of private land. They use fear to stampede those Americans reluctant to go along with their agenda. The governing governing documents for this plan has been the Sustainable Development Goals or the SDGS from the United Nations. Their agenda for the government reads in part, quote, we recognize that social and economic development depends on the sustainable management of our planet's natural resources. We are therefore determined to conserve and substantially use oceans and seas, freshwater resources, as well as forests, mountains, and dry lands, and to protect biodiversity, ecosystems, and wildlife. We recognize that sustainable urban development and management are crucial to the quality of life of our people, We will work with local authorities and communities to renew and plan our cities and human settlements so as to foster community cohesion and personal security and to stimulate innovation and employment. We will reduce the negative impacts of urban activities and of chemicals that are hazardous for human health and the environment, including through the environmentally sound management and safe use of chemicals, the reduction and recycling of waste, and more efficient of water and energy. And we will work to minimize the impact of cities on the global climate system. We will also take into account of population trends and projections in our national, rural, and urban development strategies and policies. Unquote. Now, who would be in charge of executing this agenda on American soil? Would it not be the Department of Interior, but more specifically? The Bureau of Land Management, which announced last Friday afternoon that they were moving their headquarters from Grand Junction, Colorado, to the District of Columbia. Taking the Bureau out of the area of the country where most of 247 million acres they are responsible for and moving its leadership into the swamp. The director of the Watchdog Group project, the Public Trust, said, quote, This move is certainly appropriate for a Friday afternoon news dump. Protect the public's Trust Trust will be investigating whether all the appropriate procedures and protocols were followed in the development of this decision. In the wake of the ongoing Inspector General investigation of the Bureau's Nada Culver, other complaints and controversies surrounding Interior leadership, concerns about the potential conflicts of interest among high-ranking staff, this only adds to the questions around the operations and management of the Department under Secretary Haaland." the head of the BLM, Tracy Stone Manning, has a storied history of radical environmentalism which forced her into a party-line vote in the Senate in order to be confirmed. Even outlets such as the Washington Post were forced to address the troubling history of the then nominee Stone Manning. On July 22nd, they wrote, quote, Republican opponents have seized on this Incident and other issues to cast her as an environmental extremist who should be withdrawn as the nominee. Tracy Stone Manning collaborated with eco terrorists, said Senator John Barrasso, Republican of Wyoming, of the State Energy and Natural Resources Committee. A BLM director during the Obama administration, Bob Abbey, also said he opposed her confirmation because of her involvement in the tree spiking incident and the fact her initial silence. Put people at risk. The truth is, although Biden pitched himself throughout the campaign as a moderate, he has governed as anything but. His nominees for almost every position have been ideological radicals, which have drawn strong Republican opposition. Failed former Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland for Attorney General, Xavier Becara to lead the Department of Health and Human Services, and failed ATF Director nominee David Chipman, just to name a few. This duality allows the administration, media, and American people to believe the leadership in Washington is moderate, when in actuality, it is the most radical government in American history, headed by the empty suit that is Biden. This all culminates in a Biden administration policy being carried out by the Department of Interior and Bureau of Land Management known as the 30 times 30 plan. This plan, which was announced in the first week of the new administration, plans to tackle the climate change by setting aside 30% of Americans' land mass for conservation. What the administration means by this is it has still yet to be made clear. KMTV News in Nebraska interviewed local farmers to find out their reaction to the proposed plan, who were naturally extremely concerned, not only about their livelihood, but also about the ability of the United States to produce enough food under these measures. And one farmer said, quote, If we were to take away one-third of the grazing land in this state, beef would become very hard to find. If we were to take away One-third of our row crop land out, the prices of commodities would be so high when it comes to agriculture in the Midwest is that during the summer in the peak of corn production, we produce 40% more oxygen than the Amazon rainforest, unquote. The 30 by 30 plan clearly is in line with the United Nations 2030 agenda of pushing rural landowners off their land in the name of conservation. And it appears the current administration is siding with the United Nations globalist interests and corporate class against everyday hardworking Americans, even at the expense of property rights. With food prices already soaring, Due to the economic incompetence of the administration, soaring interest rates and still unresolved supply chain issues such as policy, a policy could plunge American families into a crisis not seen since the Great Depression. And make no mistake, it may not be as dramatic as China's confrontation with Taiwan or the threat of a state-sponsored cyber attack. But the threat from the Biden administration's Department of Interior and the Bureau of Land Management is just as real. And due to all of the above, there are going to be many more deaths. There have been many deaths related to not only this pandemic of COVID-19, its different variants and the so-called safe vaccine. But hundreds of thousands of people die weekly from other causes that are blamed on COVID, yet has nothing to do with COVID. I received an email from a friend this last week. And this is what was explained by Gloria Gaither. At first, after a death, there's things to do. Arrangements to make, friends bring in condolences to receive, stories to tell. But after the funeral and burial, reality sets in. The sympathizers go back to their work and their lives. The flowers lie wilting on the grave. The leftover casseroles are scraped into the garbage disposal and the house is empty. Bits and fragments associated with the one so recently present begin the long caravan of reminders. A pair of gardening shoes by the back steps, an old wood, wool, plain coat in the hall closet with a wadded up tissue and a pack of clove gum in the pocket. A scribbled note in the margins of a favorite book. A roll of half-exposed film still on a camera. A layaway slip, slip with only half of the payments recorded in the pocket of a worn leather wallet. As the days go by, the other reminders lie in ambush. A fragment of a song on a passing car's radio. An old joke overheard in the grocery store. The smell of a certain kind of fragrance. As Emily Dickinson once wrote, the sweeping up of the heart and putting love away is the saddest of all industries enacted upon the earth. Grieving is the private thing after the public ceremonies surrounding a death are over, and no two people grieve alike. Some drop out of sight and avoid human contact. Some are terrified of being alone and surround themselves with people. Some treasure a loved one's possessions. Others clean them out and move to a new setting, not so laden with the memories. Some need to talk again and again through the memories and the emotions that go with them. Others climb up as if nothing has happened, and they bottle it inside. We do not know exactly how those who walked with Jesus processed the public execution of their gentle friend. We do know that one of his friends, a wealthy man named Joseph from a nearby town called Arimathea, went to Pilate and asked to have Jesus' body released to him after it was taken down from the cross. Joseph was an official of the Jewish council and had enough status to make the request. We know, too, that Joseph had already purchased the linen shroud and that he wrapped Jesus' body himself and placed it in his own tomb, carved into a rock. We know that everything had to be finished before sundown, that strange, surreal night, because nothing remotely like work or preparations could be done on the Sabbath. But after sundown, how did these very different personalities deal with the reality of Jesus' death? There was John, the gentle lover, Peter, the impetuous, Thomas, the cynic, Mary Magdalene, the much-forgiven, Luke, the scientific professor, Salome, the doer, young Mark, the observer of detail, and Mary, the overprotective mother of James. Each must have had a unique reaction to the death of Christ. The Sabbath was a day of required rest, But did they wait in silence? Did they meet each other's homes and talk it all through? Who first felt rage at the wasteful loss of this man? Who sifted through events for some clue that would make sense of it all? Give some logic to this spiral of circumstances. Who of them was in denial, wondering if it had all been a horrible nightmare from which they all might awaken at any moment? From the doers, the sunset on that Saturday night released them to get busy. Three of these were Mary Magdalene, Mary, James's mother, and Salome. Preparing spices gave them a practical way to work out their grief, and preparing Jesus' body would let them do something to show their deep love for this friend who was now gone. Had any one of them Caught his line to the Pharisees about restoring this temple in three days. Were any of them secretly wondering if by some act of divine he would return to them? Which of them felt despair? One thing is certain. Nothing halts the grieving process like a resurrection. Listen to this poem. They all walked away. With nothing to say. They'd just lost their dearest friend. All that he said, now he was dead. So this was the way it would end. The dreams they had dreamed were not what they seemed. Now he was dead and gone. The garden, the jail, the hammer, the nails. How could a night be so long? The angel, the star the kings from afar, the wedding, the water, the wine. Now it was done, and they'd taken her son, wasted before his time. She knew it was true. She'd watched him die, too. She heard them call him just a man. But deep in her heart, she knew from the start somehow her son would live again. Then came the morning. The night turned into day. The stone was rolled away. Hope rose with the dawn. Then came the morning. The shadows vanished before the sun. Death had lost and life had won. For the morning had come. The morning had come. Are you prepared for the night? Are you prepared to go on past the morning? Are you prepared at all? This ends the broadcast for me tonight. Remember to train hard and train smart to survive, thrive, and stay alive. This is Kate, signing off until next time.